Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this one is, as you probably understood by the title, it's going to be about theories on games. Like I told you all that I would make several times. <clears throat> so, we're going to be talking about just, just not, not too many theories or anything, but it's it's going to be a good amount. So, the first theory that we have today is going to be Polybius, the game that never existed. So, the story tells us about a game that many people have seemed to play, but there has never been any proof that the game has ever existed. It's said that some kids fought to play it, and some kids just mysteriously forgot about it when in reality the game never existed so the people who claim that it does exist claims that it's a very addictive game the game may have been addictive but it has some very nasty side effects like a lot of drugs they say that if you played it you could have side effects like amnesia insomnia night terrors, and hallucinations. I don't know about you guys, but that shit kind of sucks. Especially if you're in the middle of fucking anything in life, and you decide, hey, I'm going to play this game, and out of nowhere, you start getting hallucinations and insomnia. Fucking, you can't sleep. You're starting to see shit. All because of a stupid game that you played. But, as we know... The game never existed. It's weird to think about because how are we going to have a game that never truly existed, you know? But what you don't know is that this could be a game that just was destroyed and no one ever thought about it. The scariest part about this is it's confirmed not to be a creepypasta or just a myth that a random person made up. There are people that legitimately think that this game existed once and that they played it. Then these claims state that there's more to come. It's kind of scary to think that out of all of this, you get a game to play... You're excited to play this game, and magically you just start getting fucked, basically. It's hard to think that you are going to play a game and you're going to get all these side effects, or that you're going to get aggressive just to play the game. It's a very not dark concept but a strange concept to understand and grasp what a lot of people don't get is that just because it's a strange concept doesn't mean that it didn't actually happen there's a lot of things that did happen that there has never been proof of that we don't even know and that people still claim to be true One of those 
was a theory that I was going to talk about, but I decided to put it off because it wasn't about a game. It was a murder. And I'm thinking we could have probably another episode about uh, serial killers or just random murders that we discovered out of nowhere. If you guys want to see that, let me know, and I will make another episode just based off of that. But... Uh, after all of this, there are people who have actually done research to find that this game doesn't exist, and they want to know how and why it was made or thought of, but there's no evidence of anything. Everyone has always been left in the dark every time they try to research this topic. Alright, next we're going to go on to... Probably one of the most known games in the fucking world. And that's Super Mario. However, it's not Super Mario 1 that we're looking at. It's the sequels. Super Mario 2 and Super Mario 3. I don't know how many of you have heard of these specific uh, theories. But there's a theory that Super Mario Bros. 2... Is just Mario's dream. So, not only are there two Super Mario Brothers, one made by Japan and one was made in the US. They were two separate games, and they may be the true sequel. Both of them might be the actual sequel to Super Mario Brothers 2. It sounds strange, but when I did my research, a lot of people believe that it's not hard to understand, but people or the uh, makers of the game claim that you can choose whichever one you want to be real because no matter what, they're both a dream. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of weird that two were made in two different countries and they're both canon. The US version. Uh, in the ending, it states that it is a dream and that all the characters are strong figures. Mario dreams that all his friends are heroes, including his brother, who wasn't really that different from him in the first game, but still, he can jump higher. And in this one, he dreamed that he could pick Peach, or that Luigi could save Peach all by himself. When in the first game, it was always Mario saving Peach. And it it's weird because Mario dreams that they aren't side characters, but that they are heroes. In the Japanese version, you can only choose between Mario and Luigi. Not, It's not a two-player game. It's a single-player game. So, if Luigi is off to save the princess and you chose him, that means Mario isn't there. So, Mario could possibly be at home sleeping, and that's his dream. So, when you don't choose Mario in the Japanese version, and Luigi is off to save the princess, Mario is just dreaming at home, or doing stuff at home, but the, the, it's not... It's a super far-fetched theory, but... If Mario was sleeping in the Japanese version, 
he could possibly be making the dream the United States version of this game. So, it's weird that you can only choose one player and it's not a two-player game because Super Mario 1 and Super Mario 2, the US version, are both uh, multiplayer games. It's just so weird that if Luigi is off to save the princess, he wasn't usually doing that in the first game. And in the third game, even more so, he's not out there trying to save Princess Peach for Mario. But that's why people believe that it's a dream. So, Mario reaches the top and becomes a hero in Super Mario Bros. 2. It's a really far-fetched theory, but... A lot of people think that that's the truth. So the third theory that we're going to have happen today is that Super Mario Brothers 3 is a stage performance. So the greatest 2D platforms or platformers of all time, that is what so many people claimed for the Mario franchise to be. But the heroes aren't ever in any danger in this game. How did this theory come to light? You may ask that, and I may not have a solid answer, but I have a stupid answer, and that's why these are theories. It's not so much stupid as strange. So, in the very beginning of the game, a red curtain similar to that of a stage curtain rises like in the beginning of a play. And I know many people wouldn't, like, connect those right off the bat. But as you keep progressing further and further into the game, it seems to get more and more obvious as you just look. You don't even have to play the game fully to understand. You can just see this, not desperate, but... It's an attempt to make it known that Mario and Luigi and all the other characters are never in any danger in this game. So, I know you guys aren't fucking asking that, hey, oh, Levi, how are you doing all this? Da, da, da. No, you're asking how I understand this, maybe? And that's because even in the game, of Super Mario Brothers 3, everything is connected to the background by something. A bar, it can be levers, it could be bolts. It's just confusing to see all of this. So, you already heard about the stage curtains that rise and show the title screen. But the title screen is bolted down to the sky. And it has a shadow. If you don't believe me, you can do your research. You can watch YouTube videos, do whatever. I watched a YouTube video. I looked into it. I didn't play the game fully, but I watched playthroughs and stuff just to get ready for this podcast so I can understand. And it's not that far-fetched. Because the title screen has it plastered into the background. Oh, and by the way, this isn't a theory. This is fully canon. Um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Don't worry. But 
Why is it plastered into the sky? Because it's not a sky at all. It's a stage. There are cuts for moving obstacles, so there's like... The, the moving obstacles are connected to the background, and they move in patterns and stuff. It's such a weird concept to see in the games. But it's weird to not see it for Super Mario Bros. 3. Because in Super Mario Bros. 1, all the moving objects aren't connected to anything, and neither are platforms. They're just there. And the scariest part is in the obstacles that are stationary are connected to the sky or the floor by metal bars or any other kind of bar is so weird to see so the stationary platforms are bolted and held by the ceiling or by the floor and you as the player you aren't the player you're the audience you're the audience that is watching Mario, Luigi bounce off of all of these obstacles. You may be in control of them, but this isn't a game. It's a show that they put on for you. It's such a weird thing to think about. And Mr. Miyamoto has confirmed that this isn't a theory, but that it's canon. So, that's, that's the weird part, you may think. But the best part about this is every time you beat a level, you exit stage right. Weird, I know. So, we had a few uh, ones that I didn't do a ton of research in for no specific reason. I just couldn't get into a few of these. Like, the Kill Switch backstory, the Madden NFL curse, and the Cap'n, or Cap'n, the kidnapper from Animal Crossing. So, I don't really know anything about Kill Switch, except that it's also a game that doesn't exist, but it's a creepypasta. So that one, th there's a backstory for that. And you can play as a woman, and as this invisible poltergeist poltergeist sorry and this poltergeist has powers that it uses to pass levels but no, there's only been a specific amount of these games made quote-unquote because again it is a creepypasta and it just they, they were they were sent out and if you failed the game you couldn't ever play it again. The coding of the game would just terminate itself. So finding a new version of this game wrapped and sealed and unplayed so you can play it fresh and understand the gameplay, it's impossible to find. There's apparently a man who found a way, or not a way, but one of them, a brand new one, and he said that he was going to post videos of him playing the game so everyone could understand. He only posted one video on YouTube, and it was him in the character selection, just showing the two characters, 
One of them visible, one of them not. And it was just a video of him crying at the screen. Creepy. I know. The Madden NFL curse, it's a weird topic. Every Madden NFL game on the front of the case, there's usually a player. And years and years went on where the person on the cover, the player on the cover of the Madden games, got injuries. And not minor ones. Major injuries that had them taken out of the game for quite a while. I didn't do too much research into it because it's just self-explanatory at that point. You can do the research, you can look at the videos. I'm not here to give you the full rundown of all of these, but I, I do like seeing the theories and how they formed. And it's just a little creepy, especially since one of them was my birth year. Alright, so Cap'n the Kidnapper from Animal Crossing. So, Cap'n, uh, there's a Japanese monster, I think, or, uh, fuck, I don't, I don't remember if it's a monster or not, if they call it a monster or a demon, but Cap'n is a Kappa, obviously, and they are known for kidnapping children. And what happens in Animal Crossing? You don't fully get kidnapped but you kind of do you never get to pay off your debts you can never leave the island you have to do everything to pay off your debts that just keep piling up and you never see your parents but who takes you to the island Cap'n takes you to the island in Animal Crossing. Alright, one more short one, and then we have uh, two of the long ones that I have tabs open for because I completely forgot to do research for this, so I am unprepared for this one. Uh, the Lavender Town Syndrome. So, in one of the Pokemon games, there is a town called Lavender Town. And if you go there in Pokemon, it essentially... There's kids that, this is a trigger warning, I will give you guys 5 seconds to click off, whatever, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So, in Lavender Town, there are kids that listened to the Lavender Town song, and there are kids that committed suicide because of this song, or harmed other people the lavender town song apparently fucked with so many kids and so many grown-ups brains because of the sound itself that there is a theory that it was made to hurt people i don't know if any of this is true but it's it's a far-fetched one kind of but it kind of makes sense one point, but it doesn't. Alright, so in the same game, Pokemon Red, you apparently kill Gary's Raticate. 
so th- this one, it's a weird one. Because you know Pokemon in Pokemon don't die. They faint, they get knocked out, whatever. So in Pokemon, you always have a rival. Gary Oak is the most popular name for a player's rival in Pokemon Red or Blue. Specifically for the Game Boy. He goes by other names, Blue, or whatever custom name you can give him. It doesn't really matter what you name him, but he is Professor Oak's grandson. And in the anime, he is named Gary Oak. So that is why his name is most popularly popularly Gary Oak. So Gary is known in Pokemon for always being a step ahead of the player as are most of your opponents, rivals, friends, and even gym leaders at some times. For example, if you choose Charmander in Pokemon, he chooses Squirtle and gains the permanent tactical advantage over you, since water always defeats fire. Or so they think. (laughs) So Gary is an arrogant kid but likable. That may be why the Pokemon fandom still wonders about the disappearance of one of Gary's Pokemon and goes as far as to wonder if the player is responsible for its death. And in the game, you can name your kid whatever you want. Ash or Red or whoever you want to be. So... You encounter and fight against Gary quite a few times throughout the Pokemon Red and Blue games. Since Pokemon is a game that revolves around capturing and training Pokemon, both characters' stable of Pokemon grow as the game progresses. Every Pokemon trainer has favorites, though, and that includes Gary. His lineup changes a little through Pokemon Red and Blue, with one exception. About the middle of the game comes through, and you battle Gary on a ship called the SS Ann. His team is a level 19 Pidgeotto, a level 16 Raticate, a level 18 Kadabra, and a level 20 version of his starter Pokemon. Most of these Pokemon are evolved versions of the Pokemon you fought with earlier in the game, including Radita that became the Raticate that you battle on the SSN. However, the next time you meet Gary, his Raticate is gone. Instead, he has a level 25 Pidgeotto, a level 23 Gyarados, a level 22 Growlithe, a level 20 Kadabra. So, what happened to Raticate? Some Pokemon conspiracy theorists believe that the answer lies in the location of the player's struggle against Gary. Lavender Town's Tower. The same Lavender Town that got kids to harm people and themselves. And that got them pretty fucked up. So the tower is infamous for being a Pokemon graveyard. And once you realize that, and that Gary's Eradicate might be dead, 
it starts coming together. So when it's when you get there, the player visits the location to investigate a haunting. It's not clear at first why Gary is there. Some fans assume Gary's in the Pokemon Tower to visit the grave of his missing Pokemon, Raticate. But if that's the case, how did Raticate die? According to the popular theory, Raticate was badly hurt in his battle against the player on the SSN. Because of this confusion on the board, she, er, on board the ship, Gary wasn't able to get to the Poke Center fast enough to heal Raticate, which resulted into his death. In fact, some fans claim that Gary meets the player in the Pokemon Tower, and Gary asks, Do you know what it's like to have a Pokemon die? So how about it? Did Gary's Raticate die as a result of a particularly rough battle? Again, there's no easy yes or no to this answer. But, it's not very likely. For one thing... Gary never asks the player if he or she knows what it's like to have a Pokemon die. Instead, he says, What are you doing here? Your Pokemon doesn't look dead. I can at least make them faint. Let's go, pal. That's a casual bit of banter for a kid with a dead Pokemon. Especially if he's facing the person for the death of his beloved pet. By contrast, some of the other mourners in Pokemon Tower mention their dead Pokemon by name. Moreover, when you beat Gary, he admits that he came to the tower to catch a Cubone and a Marowak. However you look at it, there's little indication that Gary is in the Pokemon Tower to visit the grave of his Raticate. Admittedly, none of this explains why Raticate is absent from Gary's roster. We never learn where the giant rat went to, but here's a decent guess. Like the player, Gary simply boxed the rodent. That is, he stored him along the rest of his surplus Pokemon. Ratata and Raticate are decent Pokemon to start a game with, but they quickly become outclassed unless they're groomed in a very specific way. There you have it, folks. Gary visits the Pokemon Tower to catch a Cubone, and Raticate is probably still alive. That's why you don't just blindly trust theories. Alright, this one is a fucked up one as well. Majora's Mask and the Five Stages of Grief. So, in Majora's Mask... The moon is falling. It's a Zelda game. It's fantasy. Y'all know how it goes. So, there's quite a few towns. Five, in fact, I think. So, the first town is Clock Town. Denial. The first stage of grief is denial. A defensive mechanism against ill circumstance, tripe, or typified... By the inability to rationally acknowledge that something has happened or is happening. Sorry, I'm reading them off of this, so it makes more sense to whoever's listening. Even though you probably know what the fuck denial is. So Link arrives 
in Termina through Clocktown, which ticks ever onward in its countdown to the Carnival of Time, the great festival that comes each harvest time. As the people live out their everyday lives, running errands, making appointments, and setting up for the carnival, an ominous moon looms overhead, threatening to crush the whole land. Because of his Deku scrub form, Link is con confined <laughs> in terms where he can go and what people are willing to tell him. But a visit to the mayor's office reveals an important struggle brewing just beneath the surface of all going on. Oh, there's a carpenter that says, You cowards, do you actually believe the moon will fall? The confused townsfolk simply caused a panic by believing a ridiculous, groundless theory. The soldiers couldn't prevent the panic, but outside the town walls is where the danger is? You want answers? The answer that is that the carnival shouldn't be cancelled. If the soldiers wish to run, then run. We cancelmen will stick to this tradition. The carnival will be a success. I've never heard of a defense unit abandoning its town. Muto the Carpenter What seems like a petty squabble between bureaucrats, we can actually interpret as a metaphor of denial. The carnival committee unknowingly to acknowledge and account for the looming danger chose to ignore it rather than deal with it. They laughed openly about the idea that the moon will fall and refuse to allow it to interfere with the carnival. Similarly, the master at the sword training center entertains the idea that the moon comes too close. He simply can't cut it to pieces with his blade. In both cases, we see an inability to grasp the reality at hand and foolish fantasies arising to take its place. The town of Woodfall is pure anger. The second stage of grief is anger. When denial is no longer possible, it is replaced by misdirected feelings of despair and envy. When Link arrives at the Deku Palace at the hearing or at the heart of the Southern Swamp, he discovers another case of grief. The Deku tribe's princess has gone missing. As he inquires about the situation, he meets the leader of the tribe. The Deku King, a rather ridiculous despot, hell-bent punishing a young monkey whom he believes has made off with his daughter and fed her to the monsters in the Woodfall Temple. We're about to punish the foolish monkey who kidnapped the Deku Princess. He has insulted the royal family. I'll show him what happens. When you do that, that foolish monkey is up in that cage. Take a good look at his face. The Deku King. There is one glaring problem with the proceedings, however. The monkey is completely innocent. In fact, when the princess went missing, 
He was working together with her to investigate the source of the vile swamp water flowing forth from the temple. Rather than putting his energies into the work, or at work, in search of the princess, the king instead takes his anger out on this poor monkey. The real villain at work here is anger. The evil sown by the skull kid manifesting in the cursed swamp. The toxic rift that divides us in moments of rage and the fury and might of the Deku King himself. That's two down. Snowhead. Bargaining. The third straight stage of grief is bargaining. Typed by desperate hopes or efforts to postpone or reverse suffering and loss. Link's next trip takes him north into the high snowy mountains of Snowhead. There he encounters the Gorgons, another tribe in mourning due to the recent loss of their partridge. After some careful investigation, Link meets Damarni's ghost, who beckons for him to give pursuit. Above his grave, the deceased Goron hero delivers his last request. As I am, I can only watch as Gorgon Valley or village is slowly buried in ice. I may have died, but I cannot rest. So you can use magic? The Soaring One also told me that you are able to use it. I beg you, bring me back to life with your magic. Darmani's Ghost Darmani's futile hope has brought back to life is a textbook example of bargaining. Unable to face his own failure or his people in order to find closure, he turns to magic as a meaning of undoing his death in order to finish the battle with the demon. In a way, we can see bargaining as sort of a second denial, no longer fueled by anger, but instead by foregone hope in the face of fear. The Great Bay is depression. The fourth stage of grief is depression. With the realization that there's no escaping fate comes the desire to disconnect and retreat inward. Link meets a dying Maiku on the coastline of the Great Bay, where he learns about the guitarist's girlfriend Lulu and her missing eggs. Throughout Miku's or Mikao's passing would by itself be plenty cause for grief. With the Zora mask, Link is uh, Link is able to assume the part-time musician, part-time hero's life. Seamlessly, as though he had never left. Nonetheless, leaves Lulu in isolation, gazing out into the Great Bay Temple. From outside Zora Hall, her isolation reflects depression, the fourth stage of grief. Because his death is more or less irrelevant, thanks to Link's ability to take on his form, we know that Lulu... Lulu's 
Seclusion. Jesus Christ, I am so sorry. Lulu's seclusion must have something to do with her missing eggs. We can infer that her maternal relationship to the eggs probably only serves to heighten her low emotional state. That seems to have only recently laid the eggs also suggests a possible postpartum de dimension to her depression. And just as the other religions served or regions served as apt images of their corresponding Greek stages, we can see the Great Bay as collection of Lulu's spilled tears. Depression is hard, guys. Econa Valley. Acceptance. The fifth and last stage of grief is acceptance. After passing through all the other stages, all that is left to examine one's self and reality and face the future. Econa Valley, the land of the dead. What a fitting place for Link to resolve his own grief. Other regions had him encounter a plethora of characters, each dealing with their own losses. But apart from a young girl and her mummified father, everyone else in Yanka is basically already dead. In much of the same way, Link finds no new transformation masks here. No new identities to assume. This leaves Link free to reflect on the element he's been distracted from during the rest of his journey himself. Putting on all those other masks. Hiding. Not wanting to be himself. He has to be here. In order to fill this process of examination, he climbs the tower leading into the heavens, which requires that he create twin images of himself to progress. These images, one for each of his four forms, lifeless and devoted of true personhood, represent the empty shells of the previous four stages of grief by leaving them behind. He transcended and attained enlightenment, the light arrows and the pinnacle of Stone Tower. The act of flipping the tower puts the heavens at his feet, assuring us of his ascendance. Within the Stone Tower Temple, he battles the Garo Masters. Since the Garo are according to their own official description, emptiness cloaked in darkness. Link's duels with them as he climbs towards the light signifies the internal battle between light and darkness as well as the triumph over the same emptiness associated with his twin selves. By accepting and overcoming his grief associated with his emptiness, Link demonstrates that he is no longer troubled by the loss of his dear friend. He has found himself, his true self. And that is enough, as should all of you. If you ever 
feel the five stages of grief. And you need to talk to someone. Or anyone. I will put a hotline in a post on my Instagram. You do not have to follow me. You do not have to do anything. Just please, if you ever need it, check on my Instagram and check on one of my, any of my posts. I will put them in every single one of my posts. The first thing is going to be the suicide hotline. Or if you need to talk to a friend or someone that you know, let me know. I will do my best to talk to you and I will try and help you out through your depression, your anger, everything. But I cannot help you through your own acceptance. These were, the last two were great uh, articles that I read. One by LifeWire was, did Gary's Radicate really die in Pokemon Red and Blue? And one of them was by Zelda Dungeon themes in motion, Majora's Mask, and the five stages of grief. Thank you all so much for listening. Let me know what you would like to hear in the next one. Monk time for today has officially come to a close, and I am releasing this right before midnight on Wednesday night. I told you it was coming out tonight. I promised, and I am letting you all know. Monk time shall go on another day.